All right, well, here we go. Special welcome if you are visiting with us for the first time. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, welcome to those joining us online. And if it is your first time with us, uh, this is the last week of our All Church series called... Okay, that was mediocre to poor. Um, <laughs> called... How many of you have been enjoying this book, reading the book along with the series? Yeah, man, it's been so encouraging to me. Uh, just hearing the stories and the opportunities that God has given us, this one at a time, is just all about looking to the life of Christ and how he saw us, how he's loved us, how he's had compassion upon us, and now given us those same opportunities to be that for somebody else. And so we've been reading the book. How many of you have been reading the book? Okay. How many of you have been meeting together in a group for the discussion and the prayer and the Ohana videos? And then each weekend, we've gone deeper and deeper into the Gospels in this one at a time. And you know, although this is the last week of the series, you got to know this. It's really just the beginning. Let me tell you why. For some of you, I know and it's amazing. This is the beginning because in this series, you found your faith in Christ Jesus. And this is the, a new beginning for you. You know, for others, it's the beginning of new friendships that have been formed within the groups that have been meeting together. Have you met some new friends? Yeah. And for many of us, it's just been a whole new beginning of the adventure of living one at a time, to see through the crowds, to see the one, to step out of your comfort zone and reach out with compassion. And I know, I'm up here almost every week. For some of you, this is the beginning of coming to service every week in a row, because this has been a seven-week series. And others meeting together each week. And it's the beginning of experiencing God using you to impact the lives of others, one at a time. And so what's next? Well, you heard the first thing, our Thanksgiving Eve service next Wednesday at 6.30. And then uh, next weekend, we're launching a brand new Christmas series called The King of Christmas. And this is going to be a wonderful series because Advent, the season of Advent, means the coming, the coming of Christ. And this is going to be a great four-week Bible study just really looking through the scriptures, beginning with the prophecies in the Old Testament up into the coming of Christ. And uh, to supplement this series, I've ordered 1,400 of this little Advent devotional with daily readings. And uh, for those of you uh, that are kind of new to reading books, look at this. This is just one day right here. And so this, number one, is going to be available to you uh, for free at the Thanksgiving Eve service and also next weekend. And so it's an opportunity for us to continue to grow together. And so here's the deal. We have this little book. We've got this new four-week series. This isn't the end. This is the beginning to keep meeting together. And so this is an opportunity maybe uh, in your group. It, it, it grew as the series one at a time went off. You can find a few people and you can multiply and have a few new groups. Maybe your group had some space in it. You can invite more people in for this four-week series. And so talk to Kyle or Kaya, someone at the team, the connect table, shoot them an email, update them. 
but let's keep meeting together. Well, chapter 7 of the book, our last chapter, and uh, the title of the message today is this, one party at a time. One party at a time. You see, in this week's lesson, we learn that as followers of Jesus, he invites us to throw parties. But what kind of party? See, it's a party with a purpose. A party that points people to Jesus, a party that brings joy to people one at a time. You know, I don't know what picture you have in your mind when you think of God. I find that many of us are likely to often think of God as very stern and serious, you know, all the time. And in our study, we find that Jesus compares the kingdom of God to a man who throws an unbelievable party, a feast, a banquet, with great food and drink and an incredible atmosphere of joy. In fact, I just looked up the definition of feast in the dictionary, and it's an elaborate and unusually abundant meal that gives unusual or abundant enjoyment. A feast, a party. In the Old Testament, You Bible students know this. God set up a series of festivals, of feasts, of parties. And they were designed to be commemorative and also anticipatory, celebrating what God had done and what he would do next. And all seven feasts in the New Testament pointed to Christ. And this is a whole other amazing study. But the point for us right now is that God took these feasts and these parties for his people very seriously. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, he told the people of God, take 10% of all of your nation's national product and revenue and direct it towards the annual feast and party. I mean, think about that just for a minute. That would be quite a party. 10%. We've got to add that into our IRS code or something, you know? And that's a window into what God's kingdom is like. This feast language is throughout the Bible. You know, even Psalm 23, 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast well-aged wine of rich food full of marrow and aged wine well-refined. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And throughout the scriptures, we see this, this feast language. And then in the New Testament, we often see Jesus at parties. I mean, so much so that it led to the accusation of the Pharisees and the religious leaders against Jesus saying that he's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus also compared God's kingdom to a party. And in a famous trilogy of stories, which we covered in week one of this series on the weekend, Jesus taught 
that when someone turns to God, a party breaks out in heaven. The angels announced Jesus was coming to bring great joy. And he began his ministry by bringing joy to a wedding party. In the first miracle, we read in Gospel of John, turning water into wine, and each of the miracles were called signs because they just weren't this, like, you know, miraculous act to just, you know, kind of celebrate, but they were signs that pointed to show us what God is like. And in John 2, Jesus turned this ultimate party failure into the greatest party ever. The Jewish wedding party lasted seven days. Jesus is invited to the party, and partway through the celebration, they run out of wine. And you need to understand that running out of wine at a Jewish wedding, which lasted seven days, was a symbol or a metaphor that there's no more joy in the party. And this would have been a disgrace upon the wedding party. And Jesus turns the water into wine. And this is how he begins his public ministry. And this is just one among many feast pictures in the Bible. But I love how pastor and author Tim Chester really outlines this overview from the scripture. He says, against this backdrop of food gone wrong, God promises a feast. Again and again in the Bible, salvation is pictured as a feast with God. When God leads the Israelites out of Egypt, the leaders of the people are invited up to Mount Sinai to eat and drink with God. The rescue from slavery in Egypt, the defining act of Israelite identity, is itself commemorated in a meal and the meal of Passover. At the high point of Israelite history, in the reign of Solomon, we're told that the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand of the seashore, and they ate and they drank and they were happy. And even when things began to unravel, God's promises, God promises another meal on a, mount, on a mountain, a feast of rich food for all people. And on this occasion, death itself will be on the menu, and God will swallow it up. And this is an eternal feast that no one need ever leave. And Jesus provides a foretaste of this feast when he feeds the 5,000. Here is a feast which need never end. And indeed, there's more food at the end than there was at the beginning. And it's a pointer to the fulfillment of God's promise that one day we will feast forever in his presence. Jesus is giving a glimpse of the party that one day God will throw all of God's people together from all time. Revelation chapter 19, the wedding banquet. Our joy will be made complete and this party that God is talking about when he sets up his kingdom at the end of the age. This is our great hope and future in Christ, a party like no other, a feast. But throughout scripture, you see, God is pictured as this one who loves for his people to feast, to throw these feasts, to delight with good food, and even more than that, to meet every God-given longing of our souls. And I love what uh, theologian David Gooding says. He says this, the metaphor of feasting as distinct from merely eating a meal assures us that no true potential appetite, desire, or longing given us by God will prove to have been a deception. 
but all will be granted their richest and most sublime fulfillment. See, that's God. He just won't give us enough to sustain us. It's going to be abundant. It's going to be extravagant and lavish. A good banquet is more than just good food. It fills, obviously, your belly, but it fills your soul. It satisfies hungers, including the hunger of your soul, and it brings joy. And God loves to throw parties for his people and for his people to throw parties. And we see this throughout all the Bible. And so the big idea of one party at a time is that we are called, you and I are called, to be a part of bringing God's kingdom to this earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And so our lives should reflect what the kingdom is like. And the Bible's full of celebrations and feasts and parties. And so we should have a faith that should be full of celebration. So are you ready for a Bible study? Open up your Bibles or the Bible app to Luke chapter 14. And let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have to be together, to study your word. So Jesus, would you come open our heart, our eyes, our minds, Holy Spirit. Guide us into all truth. Give us one heart and one mind as your people. Bring encouragement and comfort to those, Lord, carrying heavy loads. Bring conviction to the areas of our lives where we need to make a change and align with you. And that in all of this, Jesus, you would be lifted up, honored, and glorified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've seen in our series, a third of Jesus' teachings were in the form of parables. And these are stories that give us glimpses into the way of the kingdom of God. And when you start to read these parables, what Jesus taught, you start to realize, wow, this is really different than kind of we would often think or imagine things should be. But they reveal God's heart and God's way, how God sees people, how God loves people one at a time, one party at a time. And so let's start in Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. It says, One Sabbath, when he went to dine, speaking of Jesus, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And then he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. But when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast... Do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat, and then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. 
But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. And for all those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. Uh, The first said, "Ah, I just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married. I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. So Jesus is invited to the dinner, it says, at the home of a leader of the Pharisees. And he accepts the invitation, and it was on the Sabbath. And uh, no sooner than he arrives for the dinner and sits down to begin eating, right in front of him, there's a man suffering from dropsy, also called edema. This is a swelling of the joints or a swelling of the whole body, often due to heart problems or diseased kidneys or liver. You know, Jesus could have told this guy, um, I just started eating, and in fact, it's the Sabbath, so if you could just come back after sundown, I'll heal you then. Would have avoided a big confrontation with the Pharisees, but you know what? Jesus didn't do that. He put down the meal, he healed the man, and then he confronted and he challenged his hosts on what accepting the invitation to God's party is all about. You know, there's very good reason to believe that the Pharisees planted this man with dropsy edema there in front of Jesus at the meal. Number one, they would have never normally invited this man to join them for dinner. It's the Sabbath. And in the original language, when it says they were watching him closely in verse 1, the verb has the meaning of lying in wait to catch somebody. They were lying in wait. They want to get him. It was a trap. 
And I love the simple and matter-of-fact way that Luke reports the miracle. The Pharisees are there just waiting to trap Jesus. Come on over for dinner, you know. It just begins the meal, and it's like there's a guy with dropsy right there in front of him. And the Pharisees are like, gotcha, we got the setup going. And then Jesus just takes hold of the man, heals him, sends him away. Because normally edema, this kind of condition, just doesn't go away. When you're terribly swollen and bloated, right, if you got treatment, it would take days or weeks. And Luke doesn't say anything about the man's or the witness's reaction. I mean, it's like Jesus just heals the man, sends him away, and is like, can you pass the peas? And then he just asks this next question to get the dinner conversation going and says, now which of you that has a son or an ox that would fall into a well would not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? He's saying, if if it was your son, heck, if it was just your own oxen, you wouldn't hesitate to pull them out, but yet you would let this man go on in his suffering. when it came to somebody else that wasn't an immediate family member or it wasn't a prized personal possession, it can wait. We don't want to violate the Sabbath. And Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy, their lack of love. And he goes on to teach them through this about the nature of God's invitation and God's heart for all people. You know, in our book, One at a Time, On page 124 and 125, Kyle Eidelman wrote this. If you Google Christian sacraments, you won't find partying on the list. But maybe that's a problem. Could it be that we've lost something vital God wants for his people? It reminds me of something I experienced a couple years ago after a church service when a man came up and informed me, I think somebody should say something to the young man who walked forward wearing a baseball cap. It's really not appropriate to wear a baseball cap in church. Kyle says, I examined his face to make sure he wasn't joking, and he wasn't. So I said, oh, you mean the young man who didn't grow up in church and walked forward to give his life to Christ and be baptized? You want me to say something to him about the baseball cap he's wearing? Then Kyle writes, he apparently wasn't fluent in sarcasm because he responded, yeah, somebody should say something to this guy. Kyle then wrote, my adrenaline increased and it hit a place where I knew I needed to walk away and find a later opportunity to correct his thinking, maybe in a book or something. I think that upset man represents so many Christians who have lost the celebratory spirit that, God, that led God to require partying in the Old Testament and Jesus to repeatedly go to, and talk, go to and talk about parties in the New Testament. And party-less Christians today may represent the Pharisees in Jesus' day who lost the heart of God and made their faith about keeping rules and traditions. You could describe some of the lessons we'll learn from the text today from the Pharisees here in this story with this warning. Don't be a party pooper. Turn to your neighbor right now and tell him, don't be a party pooper. These Pharisees knew their Bible inwards and backwards, front center, middle, their aim in knowing the word of God wasn't to examine themselves, but to have ammunition against others. Always waiting to catch somebody else in an error. They're watching Jesus closely, it says, and they weren't watching themselves closely. 
And they're waiting for him to violate the Sabbath so they could pounce on him, but they weren't applying the law to themselves. And they cared about the external conformity and not inward righteousness. They're not concerned about whether they please God and their heart and their thoughts and their motives. They just want everyone to follow the rules, and it's about what you look like and what you do. You see, it says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. You know, if you leave service, and your first takeaway is, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this message, you know? I mean, they could really benefit from this teaching because they got so many issues that they need to change in their life. You know, if that's you, man, watch out. You know, I've seen husbands who use the word like a, a club against their wives. You know, she doesn't submit to me as the head of the home. In fact, did you know the Bible never commands you husband to be the head of your wife. It instructs wives that their husbands are the head, but when it comes to the husband, the command is to love your wife even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so the first question husbands need to ask is, how am I doing sacrificing my time, my energy, my interest to serve my wife and my children? Is there no amen wives out there? But you see, here's the principle I learned many years ago. My obsession with finding out what's wrong with you will keep me from finding out what's wrong with me. And in God's kingdom, the party poopers are those that first don't do the work of self-examination of their heart before God. And Jesus powerfully and miraculously heals this man who's been planted. The Pharisees ignore the evidence. And it wasn't the first time that this sort of thing happens. Over and over in the gospel, you see Jesus do this. Healing people on the Sabbath and they become angry about it. And in the same way, if you're not careful, you can build a case to defend your point of view and ignore the overwhelming biblical evidence that convicts you of your own sin. Love what the old preacher John Owen says. He says, a man preaches that sermon only well to others, which preaches itself in his own soul. If the word does not dwell with power in us, it will not pass with power from us. Notice the motive of the Pharisees in this story. Why did they invite Jesus to dinner? What was the motive in the heart? It was, from the evidence we have, not to learn from Jesus, but to try to trip him up. You see, in God's kingdom, party poopers are those that seek to trip others up with the word instead of lift them up. You know, from the beginning here at Hope Chapel, Craig Englert, our founding pastor, has taught us and modeled for us what it means to be a grace-oriented church. And I know it's hard to believe as a church here at Hope Chapel, but we don't always get it right. We don't always get it right. Not for lack of trying, but we just can't always get it right. But when we err, we seek to err on the side of grace. 
Jesus is invited to this dinner on the Sabbath, and the leaders of the Pharisees there, they hope he'll fall into their trap that they have set. And after healing the man, Jesus says, well, which of you that has a son or an ox that's fallen into the well on the Sabbath, would you not hesitate to pull them out? And then you see in verse 6, they could not reply to these things, it says. And then there's this long, awkward silence at the dinner table. Ever had that? Yeah. And it continues on in verse 7. It says, when he noticed then how the guests had picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. And so if so, the host will, you know, who invited both of you will come and say to you, hey, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus noticed the men competing for the better seats at the banquet, and seatings in those days were ordered. And so the seats that were closest to the host were the best seats, and the guests looking for recognition tried to secure them. You know, I think Jesus might have had in mind Proverbs chapter 25 in mind when he said this, that says, do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king. Don't stand in the place of the great, for it's better that he say to you, come up here, than you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. The more that we grow in grace, the more we grow in humility. The more we grow in grace, then the more we grow in humility. And biblical humility is the recognition that everything good that we are and have comes as an undeserved gift from God. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? And so if you did receive it, why do you boast? Biblical humility is a recognition that apart from Christ, I can do nothing and I don't trust in myself, but in the Lord And biblical humility is always accompanied by a growing awareness of the depths of my own sinfulness and at the same time a growing appreciation of the amazing grace of God that's been shown to me in Christ Jesus. And it's a parallel track. And so when Jesus tells the dinner guests that they should seek out the lowest seats, he's not advocating for this kind of like little scheme or trick. No, no, what you do is you, you, when you arrive to the party, you take the lowest seat so that you'll end up, you know, with the best seat. See, the motive there is still pride, the very thing that Jesus is confronting. He's saying everyone before God ought to feel that the lowest place is the proper place for him. I like how one pastor commented on this. He said, humility or rising downward. It not only draws others to us, but it draws God to us. It continues on in verse 12 through 14. It says, Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or sisters, relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of 
the righteous. I mean, how much better to reach out in love to those who no one knows but God? Why? Jesus says, well, you'll be paid back in this life or in the next life. One is very temporary, one reward is very temporary, and the other is eternal. You know, Jesus is not teaching that it's wrong to invite your friends or your relatives to dinner, to a party. He's making the point that if you invite others with the motive of you're only willing to serve those who can pay you back or might later be able to advance your cause or serve you, you're using people, you're not loving people. And Jesus is confronting the motive for service. The reason pride is the mother of all sins, it's so deceitful because it's the only sin that can hide itself inside of good works and good deeds. Evil deeds, evil works are pretty obvious to to see, aren't they? And they're just evil and bad through and through. But pride in our life can burrow itself inside of the good works. And here Jesus is pointing out that if there's pride and selfish motive, even in your service, it's a sin. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, my own experience is a daily struggle with the evil within. I wish I could find it in myself, something friendly to grace. But hitherto, I've searched my nature through and have found everything in rebellion against God. And the point of that is, that's why you need to start with the grace of God. Jesus is teaching us through this story that the first thing we need is grace. And then when you receive the grace of God in your life, it will begin to produce humility. And then grace and humility are the precursors to and the foundation of biblical service and generosity. True service to God. When we're in touch with our spiritual bankruptcy, We're ready for the grace of God to then be deposited in us. And that will then lead to a realistic vision of who we are and who God is, which produces humility. And then it's in that place that your good works, your service, your generosity reveals the true heart of God and his heart for people moves through you. And because of God's incredible grace, to those who would receive the invitation, then what happens? They're sent out on a mission to invite others to the party by throwing parties. Let's look at verses 15 through 24. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, well, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet And invited many guests. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Another said, I just got married. I can't come. And the servant came back and reported this to his master. 
And the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. You know, the Jews pictured their future kingdom as a great feast with the patriarchs as the honored guests. And that's why we see here the one guest proclaim in verse 15, well, blessed is the one, right, who will eat at this feast in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying here is you are those invited guests. The invited guest stands for the Jews who refused God's invitation and left his table empty. And so then the invitation went out to the Gentiles. And along with the rest of Scripture, the story is illustrating the fact that Jesus came first for his own, first for the Jew, then the Gentile, Romans, then the Jewish people rejected him, but that invitation to God's party is now extended to all people. But to get a little more understanding around this parable, you need to know that when you are planning a great feast, you sent out in the first invitation, it was really like a double invitation. It was kind of like an RSVP and, uh, you know, a save the date all in one where uh, you told the host, you're coming. And then he got the head count. And then when everything was gathered, they would put out the announcement that the feast is ready and and you would go because you accepted the invitations, you'd go to celebrate. I mean, it's kind of like our bulletin. First, we tell you what's coming and when. And then when it's here, we tell you, it's here, it's time to come, it's time to celebrate. And so the guests in this story had already agreed to come, but then they backed out. And and this action was unheard of. I, I mean, it was an absolute insult to the host who had prepared the feast. You know, commenting on this, one old-time preacher called excuses, the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. Excuse number one, business. Oh, well, I gotta go examine this property. Really, at nighttime, you're gonna go examine the property? Excuse number two, oh, my possessions, I just got these new oxen. I mean, really, you, you didn't look at them before you purchased them, and you're going to go test them out in the dark? I just got married. Well, it does say in Deuteronomy 24, you know, hey, take that first year, don't go to war. It doesn't say don't go to a feast. And what all three excuses share is a laughable response to the original audience. I mean, they're meant, to, they're meant to strike the hearer as ridiculous, absurd, to excuse yourself. But has an occupation, has a personal possession of value, or has some kind of domestic duty kept you from accepting God's call and invitation in your life? Love what the commentator Kent Hughes said. He says, Jesus offers the kingdom 
a perpetual feast of peace, a feast of help, guidance, friendship, rest, victory over self, control over passions, supremacy over circumstances, a feast of joy, tranquility, deathlessness, heaven opened, immeasurable hope, salvation. Yet people turn their backs on this feast, preferring a visit with their possessions and affections. The originally invited guests decline, and we hear the master say, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. He says, go out. He's driving home a point. You know what's unique about those people? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame? It's, it's really simple. When they're invited, they come. Why? The blind don't go out to examine farmland. The crippled don't plow the land with the oxen. The poor aren't invited to hang out with the rich. And the lame were overlooked for marriage. And so they hear these invitations and there's no excuses. I mean, they're like, of course I'll be there. There's nothing in this world that I would value more highly than this invitation. And I'll come and I'll run or I'll crawl. I'll have someone carry me, but I will be there. You know, when the Pharisees demanded that Jesus answer them, why do you eat and celebrate with the tax collectors and the sinners? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I just love this. Jesus is basically saying, of course parties, of course sinners. I mean, what did you expect? And he's telling us to be a reflection of his kingdom. That we would have his heart. And even when people would come here for the first time, they'd, they'd walk away going, wow, I, I felt welcomed. Man, I, I sense this, I sense this, is, this, is, this is a community that's full of grace for one another. You know, I look around here, and boy, looks like people don't really got their stuff together. But there's a love, there's an acceptance, there's a little bit of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we want to invite people. We want to go out of our way to make others feel welcome. We want to go out of our way to notice those that are sitting alone. We want to go out of our way to spend some time with someone we don't know yet in the courtyard. We want to go out of our way to fellowship and to pray for those that we see, the one. Philip Yancey, describing this as like a victorious locker room, church is a place to exalt, to give thanks, to celebrate the great news that all is forgiven, that God is love, and that victory is certain. And so we're going to read a lot more about what this means in our daily lives in chapter 7 of the book and a lot more in the video in the Ohana groups this week. But it's this idea that throwing a party 
is one of the best ways to reach people, to influence people, to see people, to bless people, to plant seeds, to value people one person at a time. Because parties bring joy, and when Jesus came, he was the joy bringer, and it's one of the best ways that you can make a new friend and plant seeds and share the joy of Jesus. I mean, you'll notice that Jesus' followers just don't dutifully accept invitations to parties. They throw parties. And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is walking along the road, and he sees this tax collector sitting in his tax booth, and he says, follow me. And the man drops everything, follows him. I mean, he's on the most despised list by the Jewish people. He would not be invited into the temple, and Jesus invites him to be a disciple. And so what does this man do next? He throws a great banquet for Jesus at his house, invites a large crowd of tax collectors and others who are eating with him. He throws this party. He invites a bunch of his friends who are far away from God, and it's the perfect opportunity for his friends to get a real picture of who Jesus really was. You know, Kyle Eidelman said, throwing a party might be one of the most natural things a Christ follower can do. It might be one of the most spiritual things a Christ follower can do. So what if you threw a party? What kind of party? A party with a purpose. A party that points people to Jesus. A party that brings joy to one at a time. Now, what can you do? What kind of party can you throw in your neighborhood, your workplace, maybe with your family, Build relationships, bless others, point people to Jesus. You know, growing up, I loved to play basketball and uh, thought hopefully that I could play college basketball. And I, I tore my left ACL on my knee my senior year of high school and just totally took that all out of the picture. And so I ended up going to this little Bible college that had no sports. And shortly after being there, they, they asked me to start a basketball program for the little kids in the community. And I'd never done anything like that before in my life. So I started working with the kids, and then somehow we decided, you know what we're going to do? You guys are doing so great. We're, we're going to throw an all-star game and, and do this like showcase for you guys. We're going to invite the community and all the students on campus. And you got to remember, this was the late 90s. And so I invited like all these preppy guys to impersonate the Backstreet Boys and do the big halftime show. And we had all these, we actually had a girl that used to be a Laker girl from, from L.A., and she, like, organized the girls, and there was, like, a cheer team, and we had games and food and music, and then this all-star game. The whole community came out, and it was just this party, this fun celebration of the kids, and then, and then, and then it was over. And the next day, I was walking from class, and, and the president of the college and another faculty member were talking, and I'd never talked to him before personally, and I passed him by, and they just continued to talk, and then he turned around, and he said, hey, and I turned around. He just looked at me and he says, you know, what you did yesterday, that was real religion. And he turned around and walked away. And I was like, what was that? <laughs> and, I, and, and at the moment, I didn't understand what he was talking about. And I didn't even see this for many years later. But that little all-star game, that little party, that was the seed for basketball Maui which now has expanded into vertical sports. And now, 25 years later, from that first party, thousands of kids have heard the gospel and many have responded through our sports ministry. 
And, and the seed for the ministry started with a party. You know, everyone here, you need to know, you are invited to God's party. God's grace means that you're invited to the party no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Jesus died for your sins so that you could be forgiven. And there's an invitation with your name on it. And Jesus wants you to know that you're invited and it's not because you or I deserve it, but because he loves us and he's graciously opened his home to you and I. You know, it says, for by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that anyone may boast. And I love this next part. What does that mean then? It means that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so when you understand the grace of God and you receive that, it produces a humility in your life which then expresses itself through service to others and extending the same grace and compassion that Jesus has given to you to others. And I love this. It says it's a gift of God. We give these gifts at Christmas time. It's really a picture. It's a symbol of the grace that's been given to us and the opportunity that we have this season as a church family to bring God's kingdom to this earth and the community and those in need. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. And right now, if you've never made that decision to place your faith in Christ, receive his grace, place your faith in him. You can pray from your heart, your mind, speak these words out loud. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Please forgive me for all my sin. Today, I ask you to come into my life to be my Lord and my Savior. You do that, man. You place your faith in him, you're his. Nothing can take you out of the hand of God. Father, I know myself, all my brothers and sisters here, our desire is to walk in these good works that you have planned for us to bring your joy, your hope, your love to those around us that they may know your great love for them, and their great need of you. And so as we enter this new season, as we host these parties and celebrations, God, open up our eyes to see the one. Show us the opportunities to be a part of throwing that party with a purpose. Use us as your people to bring glory to your name, Jesus. We ask in Christ's name, amen.